0: Welcome and thank you for coming on this uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And I do think it says something about the health of GC uh, that so many would show up tonight to hear this word instead of staying at home like you easily could have and watched football. So, I'm glad to see you. And uh, as Chase already said, this is the first of four sermons through Romans chapter 8. And uh, there'll be one in March, September, and then the last one will be in November. And as Chase also mentioned, please pray for Corey Henry, Chris Hall, and Hunter Coy in that order as their month approaches. I know there are, many of them are already preparing their sermons. Another uh, thing that our pastors have done that's very wise is placed uh, the banner, the life of God and the soul of man over the sermon series. And I have actually taken that title and twisted it a little, uh, and given it this sermon title: "The Life of God Applied to the Soul of Man by the Spirit." And I think that's a helpful summary of Romans chapter eight, verses one through eight, which, and here's the summary: I'll say it twice. Speaks of the fruit of the speaks of the Spirit of life, who has set us free from the power of sin, which leads to death. Because God fulfilled the just requirement of the law when He crucified His Son in the flesh. I'll say that again. Romans 8, 1-8 is about the Spirit of life who has set us free from the power of sin which leads to death. Because God fulfilled the just requirement of the law when He crucified His Son in the flesh. And if you haven't already, uh, find your place in Romans eight 1-8. through But I'll pray before I read the text. Father, we need You uh, more desperately than we could ever know. Uh, we're all weak. I'm weak. And we need Your Spirit to invade this place and to speak this truth right into our hearts and then cause us to walk in it all of our days. That's what we want. We want... We don't want this to be just a meeting where nothing happens. We want uh, the Spirit of life to come. And we want fruit to be uh, produced as a result of tonight. Give us Your Son, the One who was crucified, who died and who rose again from the dead for our redemption, and fill us all with Your Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from Romans 8, verses 1-8. through might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the Spirit, to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, Romans 8 is really the conclusion of a portion of Romans that begins in chapter 5. And there's even a, a connection in the words condemnation between Romans 8 1, where condemnation is used, and then Romans 5, verses 16 and 18. There we read that through one mans that's Adam's sin, condemnation came upon all men. But through one mans that's Jesus, act of righteousness, many are justified. The law, which already up until chapter 5 in Romans has been mentioned at least 35 times, comes up again in chapter 5, verse 20. It says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now that led naturally to the question which Paul poses at the beginning of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And you know Paul's answer. May it never be. Then at length, Paul writes about how believers are united to Christ and they're dead to sin and no longer enslaved by it, but are rather slaves of righteousness. And not only are we no longer enslaved to sin, but chapter 7 begins with an explanation of how we are released from the law, which is good for us because our sinful passions are aroused by the law according to chapter 7, verse 5. And those enslaved by their sin will always act on those passions and defy the law of God, bringing condemnation on themselves. Not just because they're an Adam, but also because they actively participate in rebellion against the living God. And they love to do so. Then Paul defends the law. Because up to this point, one might think that the law is bad because it produces so much sin. But Paul takes pains to say that the law is holy and righteous And the problem is not with the law, the problem is with you, and the problem is with me, because we are sinners. Now the latter half of Romans 7 is the center of a debate that's gone on for two centuries. Uh, I'll read two portions of that text. It is the text where Paul is talking about how uh, the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things that he doesn't do... uh, He wants to do, okay? But here, the confusion happens because of verses like this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. And then, it also says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind at making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now you can see where the confusion could come, right? I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin and I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. The question is whether or not Paul is speaking of himself before he was converted or after he was converted. And there really are compelling reasons to take both sides. All that to say as background for Romans 8, whichever side you take, and there are a plethora of other views out there, the point for us, the big takeaway, is the same for us. The law cannot rescue you from your sin. And it cannot rescue you from God's condemnation. The law, though good, has that particular inability. And you and I are to blame because of our sin. There is nothing wrong with the law. But we are sinners. So much so that we must have a righteousness not that comes from external obedience to the law, but rather is given to us freely from outside of ourselves. Now then begins Romans 8. You cannot save yourself by obedience to the law. The law cannot produce righteousness in you. It's not possible. But Romans 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 is the climax of that whole section. And this is what we're dealing with. Salvation in Christ granted through the Spirit and how because of Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. Romans 8, 1-8 is how God applies the work of Christ. That is that act of righteousness from the one man in Romans 5 to our souls through His Holy Spirit. Alright, tonight's sermon has three main points. And they are, first, the law's inability and man's condemnation. Second, God sent Christ as an offering for sin. And third, our freedom from the law of sin and death, which has been effected, or the Spirit is the one who brings it about. But it's been effected by the Holy Spirit. Or you could say, the problem or the plight the solution and the application of that solution to our souls. Or, more familiar but rearranged, you could say, God, man, sin, salvation. Once again, it's the same Gospel that we hear week in and week out. It's The same Gospel that was preached from this very pulpit this morning. Because, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. And there are even several allusions in our text to the Old Testament to several Old Testament promises. Some of them were read. We heard about Jesus, our forerunner in the Spirit, who was hated. We also heard about the law of God being written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit's indwelling of God's people from Jeremiah. So the allusions come from Isaiah 61 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37 primarily. And all of those speak of the setting free of spiritual captives the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Spirit and a righteousness that comes to us through the Savior. And here in Romans 8, once again we find that it's only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit that we can possess any of those things. So first, the law's inability and man's condemnation. God came into history and He did something for us and for our salvation. But why did He act? What was the problem? What was the, the plight? Well, there's, as always, a root cause, and then there's all the fruit that comes from the bad tree that has those rotten roots. And the root is that man is utterly sinful, even from birth. We needed to be saved from the wrath of God, which is pointed directly at us because of our sin. Now, the way our text speaks of sin is it uses the term flesh. And those people whose minds are set on the flesh, that is, those outside of Christ, not filled with the Spirit of life, will not submit to God according to verses 7 and 8. And with their rebellion, God won't be mocked. God will meet human rebellion with vengeance and wrath. But rather than simply obliterate all of mankind, we see in the Old Testament, Him gather a people to Himself, And then he gives them his law, which is a clear disclosure of his will. He was telling them how to live as his people and how to please him. And the giving of his law was motivated by his mercy and his love. It was meant to be life-giving. Now, I know that that sounds controversial, that the law was meant to be life-giving. And uh, at first to me, it was kind of a, I had to take a step back too. But I hope to really briefly just show you in Scripture that that idea comes from Scripture. And I'll read four quick texts, uh, three from the Old Testament and one from Romans 7 that comes right before our text. All right, uh, Ezekiel 20, 10 and 11. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them My statutes and informed them of My ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. Ezekiel 18.9 If he, that's any man, any Israelite, walks in My statutes and My ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Leviticus 18.4-5 and 5, which those other two texts are probably built upon. You are to perform My judgments and keep My statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God so you shall keep My statutes and My judgments, by which if a man may live, he does them. By which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And then Romans 7, this is right before our text. Romans 7, 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in Life proved to result in death for me. Now maybe it's easier to think about it this way. Jesus Christ, while He was walking on earth, summed up the law of God in two commandments. We know them. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now you and I could say if someone could do those things perfectly, we could truly say of them that they possess real and true life. Another example. There's an allusion to Adam in the garden in that Romans 7 text. Here's what it says again. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now God had given Adam in the garden life. And in fact, if we define it by knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ, He possessed eternal life. But when the commandment came not to eat of the fruit, in the end, it resulted in death for Him and for me. So why has the law, if God gave it in mercy, and it was supposed to give life, why has it not been life-giving? Again, is there something wrong with God's law? No. Romans 7.12 declares emphatically, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there is nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with you and me and every human being save one who has ever lived. Outside of Christ, we're all enslaved to our sin and the law could not produce righteousness in us because of our sin. In the face of God's righteous commands, Sin so rules and reigns in the hearts of unbelievers that they don't even have the ability to obey, according to Romans 8. So the law's inability then is its inability to make you right before God. Because in light of God's commands and knowing them, we've chosen rebellion and sin instead of love and obedience to Him. And because of man's willful rebellion, man stands under the just condemnation of the Almighty. Now Paul labored in the earlier chapters of Romans to say this again and again and again. Just one verse, Romans 1.18, and you know it well. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's just wrath or His condemnation is pointed at all men Jew and Gentile alike, according to Romans 1-3. through We deserve His condemnation for our sin. But, thanks be to God that what the law could not do, God did. Our second main point. God sent Christ as an offering for sin. And the whole reason why we spent all that time talking about the law's inability and our condemnation is really so that this point would have... Uh, its proper effect. And I want it to land, and I've been praying that it would land with the weight that it ought to land because it deserves uh, our hearing and our belief. Here, verses 1-3, through three, again with faith, with all that background. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So what the law could not do, namely, make you right before God and produce a righteousness in you, God did by sacrificing His own Son. And I've been praying that the Spirit of life would come now and help us see. Can you even Dial up momentarily what awaits an unjustified sinner. We are so quick to forget what we've been forgiven of and what awaited us. We forget God as wrathful avenger and the Christ who bore the Almighty's wrath for us. Christ suffered the wrath of God. Hear these words from the mouth of God Himself and tremble. Three quick texts again. Mountains quake before Him and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth the third text, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Christ bore the wrath of God for us. The full force of God's unrelenting fury that will one day be poured out on unbelievers was for us endured by Christ. We could ask the question, what kind of love is this? I mean, what kind of lover takes his own son and kills him for the sake of rebels who hate him? God's love, and I'm hoping that we'll rejoice in it, is unimaginably glorious. Just think of it again. the God the Father sent His beloved, sinless, righteous, perfect Son in whom He takes great delight to the earth of all places. This idolatrous, sin-torn world to earn for us a righteousness we couldn't and to bear our condemnation and in Christ we get the love of God through his spirit which brings us to our third point our freedom from the law of sin and death effected brought about by the Holy Spirit first just a quick word about what the text means by law In verse 2 of Romans 8, it does not mean the Mosaic Law or Genesis through Deuteronomy. It means something more like power. So the verse could read like this. The power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. So, we have been set free from the power of sin by a greater power, namely that of the Holy Spirit. And this is really speaking of the transfer of realms that is probably most familiar to us in Colossians chapter 1. Here's what the verse says, and you'll be very familiar. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now what's not incredibly clear from Colossians 1 is that it is the Spirit of God who effects this in the life of the believer. Verse 2 is actually the ground for our belief in verse 1. How can we be confident that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the power of sin and death. It's only when the Spirit of the living God comes into a man that it can be said of him that he truly possesses life. And the Old Testament allusions really start to come to the fore right here in Romans 8, verse 2. God had promised in the Old Testament His Holy Spirit to His people in the latter days and guess in which days we are living we live right now in the latter days this verse alludes to ezekiel 37 and the picture there the vision that was given to ezekiel beautifully illustrates this verse and we specifically in about in what we're about to read which is ezekiel 37 We want to see what the Spirit of life is up to in those verses or the effect the Spirit has on men when God chooses to breathe Him into them. And I won't read all of Ezekiel 37, but just a few verses. But here again, the Word of the living God. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. Now let me say, breath is the same word that's translated spirit in the first verse. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Again, the same word. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath, again, same word for spirit, came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And again, the word Spirit, which in the Hebrew is ruah, is in here, is the same word that's translated breath over and over again. So the word for breath in the Hebrew is the same as the word for the Spirit. God would animate these dead bones with His Holy Spirit. So Ezekiel prophesies over the bones and flesh and skin and sinews grow on them. But the last phrase of verse 8 says, but there was no breath or spirit in them. So Ezekiel prophesies again after being commanded from the Lord. And the Spirit enters them. And then an exceedingly great army stands to their feet. And we know that the breath that entered them is the Holy Spirit because of the last verse in that section. Ezekiel 37 14, which is the last verse of the explanation of the vision that comes in 1 through 10. And that verse says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And there simply is no precedent or event in the life of ethnic Israel that you can point to to show that this has been fulfilled in physical Israel. This is an eschatological. And Romans 8 is full of eschatological flavor through and through. This is an eschatological prophecy about the latter day or true Israel. It's about us, friends. That's who we are. We, like Old Testament Israel, were dead under the curse of God. Bones just scattered everywhere. We had no spiritual life. But when we heard the Gospel and God breathed His Spirit into us, we were made alive with Christ. And we are part of God's exceedingly great eschatological army. And this is motivation for godly living. Because Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4 about soldiers, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of of everyday life, so that He may please the One who enlisted Him as a soldier, who happens to be the One who also gave you life. For those in Christ, the Spirit of life has come, and the old order of sin, that realm, is gone. It has been done away with in God's own Son. And Christians now make it their aim to please Him, the One who gave them life. All right. Briefly, two applications from Romans 8, 1-8. And the first I grab right from the latter verses of Romans 8, 1-8. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now what are the things of the Spirit? Well, all the things that tend toward life and the glorification of Jesus Christ. Think on Christ Himself. Dwell on His sacrificial death on your behalf. Rejoice in His resurrection. Pray without ceasing. Love the brethren. Get in His Word so regularly and beg Him to own you by it. So, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And the second brief word of application. Give thanks to God in everything. If God has done all of this for you, removed your condemnation by sacrificing His Son, gave you His Spirit and the life that comes with Him, and the knowledge that He planned that from so long ago in His love and grace. Should thanksgiving not simply burst forth from really grateful hearts, which should be ours all the time, so give thanks, give Him thanks, because He is honored when we do. You know Hebrews 13.15. That text says, through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to His name. Let's thank Him now. Father, we do give You praise, thanks. We want You to be honored for the life that You've given us in Your Son. We deserve, we deserve your, your relentless fury. And we deserve hell. And we deserve for all of that to be poured out on us for eternity. And rather than do that you have chosen and planned from long ago to fill us with your spirit and to cause us to walk in your statutes and to save us in your son that's that's unbelievable and we don't deserve it so make us a thankful people if we become a thankful people we'll live for you more readily and often change our hearts we pray in christ's name amen